Stephen Miller is a populist in the same way that, like, I don't know, I've taken up cross-country running. Either we're not doing it or we're both very bad at it. Hello and welcome to The Weeds on the Vox Media Podcast Network. I'm Dara Lind. I'm here with Matt Iglesias and Vox senior politics reporter Jane Koston. Uh, We are going to talk to you guys again about immigration. I know this has been Friday Weeds every week. Uh, This is not me being super nefarious and saying we're going to turn the weeds into an immigration podcast, though believe me, I would love that. It's because yesterday the White House finally released— It really is. uh, Finally released an immigration— "Quote unquote framework that does not just represent its immigration wish list for you know every single thing, and in theory they think could be the core of a bipartisan proposal that could actually pass both houses. The extent to which that is true is still TBD. Uh, there was a big Russia scandal, Robert Mueller thing last night that is probably going to attract Congress's attention for at least a little while, but the policy remains on the table. And so we are going to be talking a little bit about that and also talking about the interesting shift that's happened within the GOP where in in which concerns about legal immigration and possibly the racial subtext of legal immigration. This is what Matt is calling the white genocide podcast of the weeds. Well, Yes. Oh, no. <laughs> and I should say, this this document that came out yesterday, a part of what's significant about it is that it contained a clear proposal for dreamers in a way that previous White House documents hadn't, right? That's, that's part of what transforms this from a sort of a vague wish list to this is a proposal. I mean, I, I don't think anyone would judge this to be a realistic proposal for something that will get 60 votes in the Senate, but it has the it has the structure of a proposal, right? Which which includes the fact that, I mean, I know you've been ranting about this, but it it answers two sort of specific questions about, like, what are we talking about yes. when we talk about legislation to help dreamers? Right, right? And, it, and it gives fairly liberal answers to both of those questions, right? Like, which is interesting. Yeah, it, it resembles much more the uh, Durbin-Graham framework that, President Trump famously poo-pooed a couple of weeks ago, uh, much more than the bill written by Bob Goodlatte that the White House has been holding up as its example on the legalization question. So, what, so what's so the right, difference? Right, there? Yeah, there are, there are two big important kind of gaps between those two proposals, and in both of them, the White House has gone to the left. The first question is, who gets access to legal status under this proposal? Uh, there's been a question of whether that's just the 690,000 people who are currently protected or were protected as of September by the Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals program, meaning they, you know, had temporary protection from deportation and work permits. Uh, the argument for broadening that has been that there are people who could have benefited from that program who either didn't apply for whatever reason or were too young or too old. And so if you expanded it to the kind of broader population of dreamers, you could get as many as 2 million people on board. The White House's framework appears to say that it's expanding access to legal status for people who have DACA or had DACA or people who would have otherwise qualified for DACA. And it thinks that's a universe of 1.8 million unauthorized immigrants. The second dispute that it's resolving to the left is, do those people have eventual access to U.S. citizenship or not? The conservative position has been that no one who's here illegally should ever be able to become a U.S. citizen. The White House framework says that in over the course of 10 or 12 years, they should be able to apply for citizenship, uh, which, you know, while the details of that are not really specified in this proposal, which is, after all, a one-page document, it certainly looks much more like a dream act than it does like the kind of you have per- permanent second class status uh, proposals that good Latin others want. And so this means at the end of the day, if this went through, dreamers would be basically better off than they were under the DACA regime. Uh, substantially. And, so, and it would be much closer to kind of the broader, popu- the generational population of dreamers, right? The generation of immigrants who came to the U.S. as children than the DACA program was, which was, you know, ultimately a program that not a lot of people went for because it was temporary. Right. So so basically, the the give here is, you would say, more than Trump needed to give. 
Right. That I mean, I mean, that, that, you were that, just saying that we don't have 60 votes in the Senate for this. No, right? no, no. I, I was. But I mean, but I mean, just in the grand scheme of things, if you if you rolled back to when the initial decision was being made to cancel DACA. Right. If if at that time there had been some like, you know, if like five days later, Congress had passed some law that was like, hey, now everybody can get work permits. Yeah. They'd be like, OK, but this is more generous than that. Yeah, and I think that it's also worth noting that the previous proposals from the White House have also been really tough on, okay, we're going to legalize some of these people, but we're going to crack down on other unauthorized immigrants who are in the U.S. We're either going to make it harder for them to get jobs, we're going to make it a crime to be in the U.S. without status, you know, yada, yada, yada. That is kind of absent from this version of the proposal. They're really backing down on some of the interior enforcement that they were really pushing. That's what immigration hawks had been focusing on in the pre-Trump era is, you know, the biggest thing we need to do to crack down on immigration is to crack down on the immigrants already here. Right. So it's very interesting in that regard. It's it's generous treatment of a population of Almost 2 million million people. And there's a a remainder of maybe 9 million-ish undocumented residents in the United States who are not helped by this bill. But there is no additional crackdown on them, right? Right, as far as we know. And who the heck knows what's going to be, you know, maybe there's going to be a three-page version of this that sneaks in a bunch of stuff. but 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 what's on the paper is... The wall, quote unquote, it's money for something. And maybe you call it a wall, maybe you don't. But then a big change to legal immigration, right? Like, like not small change. Like, it's a huge overhaul of how legal immigration works is what they're asking for, in ex- basically, in, in exchange for a generous Dream Act-ish. And I mean, overhaul, I think, is kind of an overly broad way to put it. It's it's huge cuts to legal immigration, right. right? It's not what they've been saying they want, which is eliminating some kinds of ways people can come to the U.S. and replacing them with a quote-unquote merit-based system. There's no replacement, at least none that's specified in this document. It's just we are making it impossible for U.S. citizens to bring members of their family who aren't spouses or minor children to come to the U.S. to settle. So it's no parents, no siblings, no adult children, no married children. Uh, and that's, you know, and I want to I want to bring Jane in here because I think that that's kind of something that is uh, an intellectual thread in what does it mean to be hawkish on immigration that has not been super prevalent in conservative rhetoric until the last couple of years, but has now become, I think, the conservative position on what it means to be an immigration Right, exactly. And it's very interesting because you're seeing within, among conservatives, you're seeing this real debate between, and I don't want to use the word neocon because that's not exactly what I mean, but definitely kind of the more like NAFTA, free trade. Those types of conservatives are, you know, when you're talking about when they're talking about chain immigration, they're seeing it as either value neutral or uh, good. But for a lot of conservatives, you're getting these conversations about like the dangers of legal immigration and the need to just curtail immigration altogether. And you're hearing immigration restrictionists, and they're making a lot of arguments. It's interesting because a lot of their arguments are like, you know, well, this would, you know, more immigrants would boost inequality in general. And basically, you know, it's kind of this weird anti-elite argument that the more immigrants there are, the more impoverished immigrants there are that are working for this wealthy 1%. But then you're also getting, and I think it's inescapable, is that you're getting this very racialized view of immigration in which it very much is, you know, the moment immigration becomes a conversation about immigration from non-white countries, then it becomes this whole thing of like, well, you know, they bring over their grandparents and they'll... There was a piece that really blew up online um, from the American conservative in which someone talks about how, oh, you know, in Africa, they just really value the family too much. And the obvious kind of proviso there being like, if you bring over these families, they all live in one, in like a multi-generational household, and only a couple of people work. And I'm like, so, you know, the party of family is decrying family connections, And I think that that goes to, um, there was a great piece in the Washington Post today from Elizabeth Brunig in the opinion section talking about how Trump's immigration policy really goes to this weirdly individualistic concept of what it means to be an American, that, you know, in order to become an American, you have to break family ties. When for the GOP, since, you know, 
time immemorial, family was supposed to be, you know, that's the point of immigration is these great stories about families coming over all together and, you know, living and learning and loving and reenacting scenes from The Godfather or something like that. And now you're just not getting that anymore. But right, and I, I think that gets to, you know, I think the term chain migration is something we've discussed on this podcast before. Uh, and, you know, there's an increasing pushback from the left that you shouldn't right. use it at all. Um, it technically refers to a very specific phenomenon whereby bringing over some immigrants allows them to bring over immigrants who wouldn't otherwise have been able to come. The White House immigration proposal goes further than that, right? It's right. not just immigrants who would be able to bring over their families. It's adult, unmarried children who don't actually have other immigrants who they'd be able to bring. It's parents who don't necessarily have other immigrants they'd be able to bring. Well, let's, so let's, it, it, let's does, talk it about gets the, to this, this kind of idea about is the problem control, right? Is it this individualized notion that current immigrants shouldn't be the ones selecting future immigrants, only the government should do that? Or is it this much more culturalized, racialized idea of, well, these people admire extended family too much and we can't have that? Wait, uh, well, here, I, I think it's worth dwelling a little bit on the speed of the shift <sighs> from a focus on illegal immigration and illegality to a focus on, on legal immigration. Because, I mean, I know... You know, Dara will, will will tell you that, you know, Trump said this during the campaign. Uh, I, I think a normal person watching the campaign heard Donald Trump professing a desire to be extremely harsh on illegal immigration. Yes. So I think, I th and Donald Trump himself encouraged this, right? He encouraged the idea that he was popular because no one else in the GOP field was willing to talk about illegal immigration as a problem, and he was. That's not true at all, right? Like, Scott Walker was trying to own the tough-on-illegals position. You know, there were several candidates in that very crowded field who were trying to own that. What distinguished Donald Trump from the beginning and what he never acknowledged, um, but what really did help to draw people to him was that he wasn't making those clear distinctions. When he said Mexico isn't sending their best people, he didn't specify right. illegally. When he talked about the kind of crime and disorder, he wasn't specifying illegality. He His actual policy proposals during the campaign were, at, you know, distinguished from the rest of the Republican field in cracking down on legal immigration. And to a segment of the Republican base that hadn't felt spoken to by the previous generation of of Republican rhetoric on, we love legal immigration, we just don't like illegal immigration. The people who were concerned about immigration generally and who didn't necessarily feel that the real problem was which way did you come in, but what kind of person are you and how are you changing the U.S., that's what really made Trump a player in the Republican primary. Right, but I mean, I, I, I think to, a, to another audience— the shift in the focus onto legal immigration is is even newer than yes. Trump's campaign. It's like Trump's presidency. Like I still, I frequently refer to Donald Trump as an anti-immigrant or anti-immigration politician. And every time I do that, somebody sends me an email or sends me a tweet and they're like, it's illegal in giant letters, immigration you know, dumbass, right? Like, and that's not just a Trump response, right? Like, if I would talk about Mitt Romney as running on an anti-immigrant platform, it'd be like, it's illegal immigration. Yeah, you know, like, like that's the word. Like, still, last night, I was tweeting about Donald Trump's proposal, which, like, literally does nothing about illegal immigrants. Frankly, it gives amnesty to hundreds of thousands of illegal immigrants in exchange for a huge crackdown on legal immigration. And I was just writing, I think it's crazy to cut immigration in half and I had someone who thinks of herself clearly as a Trump supporter hectoring me that, no, 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 it's just illegals that, that they're cracking down on, which is just to say that the, the shift has gone ahead of people's consciousness, right? Now, I, on another level, I mean, I, I've looked at the Gallup time series on this. Forever, it's been about 40% of the population has just said there should be fewer immigrants. Now, at a time in the 90s when there were a, a very large number of people coming across unauthorized, I think one could reasonably say, I, I want many fewer immigrants, and I want to accomplish that by cracking down on unauthorized border crossings. Uh, but but this has been a sentiment, like just like there are too many foreigners here is an opinion that a lot of people have had, but it's not an opinion that very many politicians have voiced. 
And now it's like, it's everywhere. You know, I mean, it, it it's Trump. It's Tom Cotton has become like a major senator based on his advocacy of this. Uh, Jeff Sessions used to be both the leader of sort of conventional conservatives in opposing amnesty bills, but also a bit of like an embarrassing grumpy uncle. Because yeah, he, I mean, because if you he look back at the 2013 immigration debate, you know, there are votes in the Senate Judiciary Committee where Jeff Sessions will propose an amendment to cut legal immigration and the amendment will fail with like two votes in favor. Like, it's just right. an embarrassment. And, and, it, and it used to be that what, you know, Ted Cruz, like a perfectly right-wing senator, like what he wanted to say was like, we are drawing a hard line on amnesty. We're drawing a hard line on border security. We are whatever, you know, but not like, no, we just don't want people to to move here. And but I'll keep in mind that among Jeff Sessions, you know, employees was our good friend Stephen Miller. Oh my gosh! I mean, it's not. I mean, it, yeah, it, Miller is key. It's also worth noting that Sessions staff is everywhere in this administration. Right there, I mean, several top advisory positions at DHS. Uh, people at DOJ, obviously, uh, Department of Homeland Security and Department of Justice, respectively. We were just seeing this week that uh, one of Trump's trade representative officials is this 24-year-old former Sessions staffer with, like, no obvious qualifications. It's really been interesting how much this one office, because it was the only office that was willing to say immigration is bad, period, has become this pipeline. Right, exactly. And, you know, (laughs) in 2016, Stephen Miller was on a SiriusXM podcast with Steve Bannon. And when Bannon said, you know, 20% of the country is immigrants, is that not a massive problem? And he does not say the word illegal. He just says the word immigrants. And Miller agrees because the concept now is, you know, the idea of immigrants itself, that's the problem. It's not nothing about illegality, nothing about anything else, but just the the idea of immigrants, especially because I think, you know, you're starting to hear a lot of conservatives were like, well, this all really started with, you know, immigration reform that took place in 1965, which is what ends those quotas in terms, you know, the country-based quotas that were installed in 1917 and 1924. And it's... I actually want to pause because I want to talk a little bit about this regime. Let's, Let's take a break and then we can talk about the 1920s. You guys have probably heard about Blue Apron. Uh, This is uh, the the original leading meal kit delivery service. They send you a box, uh, lots of food, lots of good fresh ingredients. You cook it yourself. It's it's really fun. They got a few different plans, a two-person meal plan, a family meal plan. They've also got a wine plan, which which sounds interesting. Um, So there's a bunch of different options out there. But the new thing that they got right now is that for eight weeks, Blue Apron is teaming with Whole30 to bring you delicious recipes. Their menu is going to feature two Whole30-approved recipes each week, Uh, stuff like seared steaks and warm lemon salsa verde with roasted broccoli and sweet potato, or chicken and kale orange salad with spicy tahini dressing. So you can kickstart your new year with Blue Apron and Whole30. They said non-GMO ingredients and meat with no added hormones. It's high quality stuff. So here's the basic deal. Uh, Blue Apron is treating Weeds listeners to $30 off your first order if you visit blueapron.com slash weeds. Check out this week's menu. Get your $30 off with free shipping at blueapron.com slash weeds. That's Blue Apron. It's a better way to cook. So let's talk about the 20s. It was the jazz age. Yeah, I, I'm really <laughs> hoping for some jazz music here. Like, uh, some, right. some, some Charleston. Great Gatsby clips. Uh, the kind of immigration regime that, Jane, you alluded to before the break, the kind of 1917, 1924 bills, something that is not as known as it should be is that those bills were based on the population of people who had been in the United States. You know, it was explicitly designed to not change the ethnic balance of the United States, but it wasn't even the current ethnic balance. They went back to the 1890 census because they were too concerned that since then there had been too many Eastern and Southern European immigrants and said, we are going to allow people into the U.S. based on what the representation of their country's ethnic group was back in 1890. And so, this this kind of explicit racism in immigration policy is, I think, it's fascinating that it's something that conservatives are now embracing. And I think in particular, Stephen Miller has, addressed, has right. talked about this as like a good period in American immigration history, right? Right, exactly. And it's, it's interesting because I think that that's something, it ties in with, in the 1920s, you see kind of progressive era activists who believe that, you know, scientifically the best way to improve kind of the 
health and hygiene of the nation is the to re- the stock literally is to reduce the number of immigrants coming from say Italy. And, you know, you've got Madison Grant writing in 1915 in The Passing of the Great Race, which you can read online. I don't recommend it. Um, That, you know, if the valuable elements of the Nordic race mix with inferior strains or die out through race suicide, then the citadel of civilization will fall for mere lack of defenders. So you're starting to get the beginnings of this demographics as destiny kind of language, which is so interesting because um, something that, you know, I wrote a piece about this that I think, you know, really kind of links these all this rhetoric together um, last week. But in 2012, you started getting from a lot of Democrats this whole demographics as destiny idea. The idea that, like, the more non-white America is, Democrats will never lose an election again. And for conservatives, and, you know, you start seeing kind of, I mean, this goes with Gang of Eight, this goes with Jeff Sessions, but conservatives start seeing that and being like, oh, absolutely not. And saying like, oh, you know, if demographics are destiny and the there is a strong and clear link, which you, you know, if a lot of white nationalists make this argument that there is a link between European Americans and conservatism and you can't have one without the other, then the simple answer is just reduce the number of non-white people. Easy peasy. So there are actually two different strains of this. You know, one is the political if you legalize, if you allow more immigrants to become U.S. citizens, then you're allowing them to vote, and inevitably they're going to vote for Democrats because Demo- non-white voters like Democrats. Right. And then there's the cultural strain that you're talking about, which is like the character of the American people. Right. This current Trump proposal kind of gives on the first one, right? Like there, you, you saw some blind quotes from upset conservatives last night saying, oh, this is going to be a permanent Democrat majority because right, right. 1.8 right. million Breitbart new Democrat voters. Don. Right, yeah. exactly. So they're, so they're giving ground in terms of the, politi- the, the racial balance of the political community in order to theoretically preserve the racial balance of the cultural community. Is right. that something that is kind of being discussed explicitly in the intra-conservative debates you're seeing? Somewhat. And it, it's really interesting because you see this cons- this idea of this national community, and it's it's not a new concept. This idea that like a national community is reliant on ties that basically have to be created through having something in common. And the best thing that some of conservatives seem to think that you can have in common is not. American citizenship, but it is an innate Americanness, which they link in many cases to whiteness. So, you know, you see this, you know, I think that if any, for people who have studied kind of the rise of nationalism or have read Nations and Nationalism, you see this idea that, you know, cultures are supposed to have something in common and that, you know, you see a lot of people and especially on the alt-right now, kind of saying that, like, well, the issue with multiculturalism is, you know, if we don't have anything in common except all being here, and that's, you know, we're destroying the American way of life. But there is, they're tying Americanness to whiteness in a very explicit way in some cases, and a very, you know, it's it's interesting how that language is kind of tossed about, and how a lot of times there's a lot of people who don't want to say the words, you know, that it's race-based, but it is. And if you're reading it, you can tell. So I, I, I think it's worth, you know, going through some of the, the, the specifics here just because delve into it in, in some detail. And, you know, from what we know, right, of the RAISE Act, say, that, that Tom Cotton proposed, which uh, it switches to this skills-based framework, but it, it cuts the volume of immigration roughly in, in half. And the, the Penn-Wharton uh, budget model took a look at this bill, and it says it's going to make per capita GDP um, a little bit lower, you know, across the country, which is to say the average native-born American is going to be poorer as a result of this bill uh, rather than richer. Um, And of course, the aggregate GDP of the United States is going to be a lot lower because we're going to have slightly poorer people, but also substantially fewer people overall. And so that's, you know, sort of the the basics of, of where you are. And immigration economics can often feel to people like it's this hotly contested field because something that happens when there's a hot political context, is naturally like you do want to look at the researchers who are on both sides of the question. And there are some, like really one 
a labor market economist who thinks that immigration has like large negative impacts on, on native born Americans. But the over that being George Borges, George, George, George Borges at, at Harvard Kennedy School. Um, but th- there's two things that, that I think you know you, you need to know about this. One is that the, the overwhelming weight of the researchers are on the other side of this, right? You know, when Chicago, uh, University of Chicago Booth School does surveys of sort of economists on a bunch of questions. And they ask people, uh, would admitting more low-skilled immigrants make the average U.S. citizen better off? 52% said yes, 9% said no, the rest said no difference. So that's a 52-9 is, is a large poll. Um, then they asked about highly skilled immigrants. It went 89 to 0. Um, and so Cotton is talking about creating a dynamic in which only highly skilled immigrants can come in. Everybody agrees that admitting highly skilled immigrants is economically beneficial to native-born Americans, but he wants to admit very few of them. So it's a kind of, it's an eyebrow-raisy sort of, this to me is like why it is appropriate to like step to the discussion of race, cultural panic, et cetera, things like this, that they are operating in a zone. If you were to tell me, you know, look, we want to take in fewer refugees and more computer programmers. I think you might say, well, that's that's fucking mean. Like, we need to help these refugees. But also the argument for doing it, I think, is, like, also kind of obvious that, like, why you might think that, you know, employers and the business community would do better with computer programmers than with refugees from Syria. But we're talking about it's actually the double motion that sort of gives the game away here, that it's like if you are greatly improving the economic efficiency of your immigration selections, why would you also cut down on them drastically? And it seems like the move that's being made is actually in the opposite direction, right? It's that there's a determination to drastically reduce immigration, but then you're a Republican, so you want to work that out in a way that doesn't create like massive business community blowback. And you do that by saying, look, this new, much smaller population of legal immigrants is going to be like specially selected for the needs of American employers, which, you know, is maybe maybe gets you some some peace and quiet from the um, the Chamber of Commerce. But it's like it's a strong claim. It's saying that we should make potential immigrants much worse off and native-born people slightly worse off. And we ought to make that small sacrifice of ourselves and large suffering on potential immigrants for for what? Right, and, and I think the other kind of thing that bolsters your point here is the relationship to populism, as we would usually construe it, isn't, it's not, this is not necessarily down the line what a populist immigration agenda would look like. If you look at it's true that Americans tend to think of high-skilled immigrants as more likely to integrate into the U.S. than immigrants who aren't as educated or who don't have professional skills. That's one of many factors that uh, the people who care a lot about selecting immigrants based on their assimilation ability care about in addition to, you know, where they come from and what their religion is and what language they speak. But if you pull individual immigration proposals, bringing in more high-skilled immigrants to the U.S. doesn't necessarily—it polls surprisingly poorly, and it does so because a lot of Americans believe, why should we need to bring in people to fill these jobs rather than training Americans to do them? Why Why are tech companies doing this so that they can import this workforce rather than growing Americans here? So a populist immigration agenda wouldn't necessarily look exactly like the RAISE Act. Well, and also, think about it in a non-immigration context, right? Like, imagine a politician giving a speech, and he's like, you know what is great is, like, people who went to Ivy League schools. Like, they're amazing. They make great contributions to American society. But really, people out there busting their asses, working in restaurants, working on construction sites, they're worthless trash. We would be better off if those people were all gone. You'd say, like, whoa, man. Like, that's the opposite of a populist take, right, on, like, 
human beings and who contributes to society, right? That it's like, we got too many of these like lazy truck driver types, uh, you know? Well, that is kind of an interesting strain in conservatism that like, what you're saying sounds a lot to me like what Kevin Williamson of the National Review has been saying, right? That like, there are places where cultural pathology, which is a term that is, has, often been used to criticize the way conservatives talk about communities of color, but is increasingly now, right. you yeah. know, the way the conservatives also yeah. talk about poor white communities. This is also, you know, you get into the hillbilly elegy thing, like there's just something wrong with you people, which was so interesting because the you people in this case is like white people from, you know, Appalachia and not, you know, black people from anywhere. Wait, right. but, uh, so, but th- those are like writers, but I'm just saying the poli- the current politics of the new, quote-unquote, populist Republican Party, right? When we're not talking about immigration, it is like the exact opposite of valorizing, like, the educated office worker and his, like, fussy professional skills over the lunch bucket regular Joe, Well, right? let's, let's so, also keep in mind that a lot of these people are very bad at talking about populism. Well, like, that, let's, that let's, not, let's not forget that <laughs> Steve Bannon right-wing genius thought it would be a great idea to go to an Alabama rally and talk about how great Harvard was and how bad the University of Alabama was. I would we are not dealing with, like, the best. Are, what is your take on whether Stephen Miller is a, is a, a populist and B, a good populist, Jane? I I don't think he's a populist. I don't think that's there's no indication that that has ever been the thrust of what he wants to do. And I think in in some ways that actually has let him be more successful and stay within the White House, because you'll notice that he's kind of like the last of the super bright Barty people left within the White House ranks. And I think that's because, you know, his, he's been laser focused on non-white immigration since he was in high school, like literally since he was in high school, giving speeches about how bothered he was that Latino uh, students at his high school were speaking Spanish. He does not care about, you know... that high school was like a cushy Los Angeles. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Like, that's... Stephen Miller is a populist in the same way that, like, I don't know, I've taken up cross-country running. Either we're not doing it or we're both very bad at it. Let's take a break. I I, want to talk about more about California, Stephen Miller's youth, uh, but but also about about white genocide. There's so much to be gained by discovering new interests, exploring new hobbies. And one great way to do that is by watching and listening to the Great Courses Plus lectures. Uh, It's a great way to discover fascinating information in virtually any category. They've got unlimited access to to thousands of topics. You've got, you know, history, philosophy, science, but also cooking, chess, like anything you can imagine. They've got great insights from the world's leading professors and experts. One thing I've been listening to recently is their course on turning points in modern history. It's a kind of overview of of the major sort of events of world history, things that that, that changed the world. Um, the invention of the printing press is, is like a great example. You know, this was not uh, a big war or a dramatic political upheaval, but so much that happened in the 16th, 17th centuries hinged on the development of the printing press. And, and the whole world we're living in, it, it comes from that. It's a great example, fascinating series. Um, so start exploring the Great Courses Plus today. Right now, they're giving our listeners a fantastic limited-time deal. You can get a free trial, or if you sign up for the annual plan, you get $20 off. So it's a generous offer. It extends your unlimited access to learn about anything for the whole year at a great savings. But to take advantage of it, you got to sign up now, and the offer won't last long. So you sign up today at thegreatcoursesplus.com slash weeds. Remember, thegreatcoursesplus.com slash weeds. So I was looking up the other day, you know, famous American leaders talking about immigration. Uh, you know, George Washington in 1783 says, America is open to receive not only the opulent and respectable stranger, but the oppressed and persecuted of all nations and religions. Uh, and Ronald Reagan in, in 1988 says, he says he got a letter from someone. He was probably making that up because Reagan liked to make things up. But he says, um, the letter supposedly says, you can go to Japan to live, but you cannot become Japanese. You can go to France and live and not become a Frenchman. You can go to live in Germany or Turkey and you won't become a German or a Turk. But anybody from any corner of the world can come to America to live and become an American. Abraham Lincoln has this slightly less quotable thing about how, you know, immigrants of his time, 
they they can't they don't have the founding of America in their blood. But when they look at the Declaration of Independence, they see a moral principle there, and they see that they have a right to claim it as though they were blood of the blood, flesh of the flesh of the men who wrote the Declaration, and so they are right. And so this is you know a, an idea, not a uncontested idea, but a but a widespread idea that America. Is a, is a civic nation, is in fact somewhat unique among nations, right? Lincoln famously, you know, conceived in liberty, dedicated to the proposition that all men are created equal. Right. And that this is a thing that is special about America is that unlike Turkey, unlike Germany, unlike Japan, anybody can come here and then they become an American. And Stephen Miller grows up in Southern California, in, in Santa Monica, at exactly the period in time when California becomes one of the first states to actually transition from majority white to majority minority. And it puts this proposition to to the test, really. Like, can you have a California in which whiteness is not normative in the way that that it has been. Um, I think it's worked out okay in the end. But there were a lot of, there was a lot of political turmoil in California in the 1990s, specifically around this. Um, You know, there was a big move under Pete Wilson to have anti-immigration type stuff. Um, I I love the movie uh, American History X about like white supremacists in in Southern California. Uh, Stephen Miller, I think, was not curb stomping people or getting (laughs) awesome swastika (laughs) tattoos on his chest. Uh, But it's clearly, I I think, influenced by those intellectual currents of like being a, a young white person in a environment where the white majority I mean, it really did slip away, right? Like that—that's—that's that's not a—that's not a made-up thing about California. Some of the anxieties about the consequences of that may have been made up, but this is a this is a a real thing that a large swath of America experienced, and that many people have been told in sort of celebratory terms. I would say from a lot of the media, like it's coming for you too. I right. think that I mean to draw out the connection between what you're saying about America as a civic nation and this you know, idea that there's actually an ethnic core to it a little more. This is a big problem of pluralism as a philosophy, uh, that because liberalism in the way we have traditionally thought of it is a way to organize society that isn't super strict about what is the good that you should be pursuing, right? It's like everybody can kind of do their own thing. The state is not going to be this extremely... You know, the state is not going to direct an idea of the good. It's going to allow you to come up with your own ways to pursue that. In practice, the United States that, you know, agreed to that in 1789 doesn't look the same as the United States that we have now. And I th- and there, there are really big questions about what do you do if a lot of people in a liberal society prefer illiberal models of the good? What do you do in a liberal society where there are a lot of people who believe that sex really should be strongly policed, for example? You know, Europe really is kind of struggling with its understanding of liberalism to not include religious expressions in the public sphere because it sees that as, you know, an affront to liberalism. But Trying, you know, trying to draw a line between that and being, you know, overtly Islamophobic and anti-Semitic because both Muslims and Jews in their ways require religious expressions in the public sphere. So it's not that there's nothing there. I think that there is, A, some social science indicating that a lot of the, you know, warm, touchy-feely civic feelings that people have in homogeneous societies get tested when those societies get more diverse. But I think it's also true that there is like a philosophical question here about, well, what if the people coming into your country don't actually think that the most important thing is to uphold its current civic values? And where this gets tricky is the idea that if they're brown, they must not care about the things that we care about. Right, exactly. Which is, you know, it's a historical and largely inaccurate because I, I think it's interesting to me that we're very, you know, we're deeply concerned about non-white people who won't live up to America's civic creed, while white people don't all the time. There are white people right now 
going bananas somewhere. And you know, you, you see this, I think, um, I always think of kind of the Clive and Bundy case or something like that. When you have groups of people who are like, we in no way want to take part in the American government. We don't want to have anything to do with you. And we're like, oh, okay, that's largely fine. I mean, we'll, we may in, get involved in a federal trial, but the federal trial will fall apart and then we'll just kind of move on. But or, it, you know, white supremacists, you know, yeah. killing their, you know, ex-girlfriends because they right. didn't they were worried about them being white supremacists. Exactly. And it's just, you know, this idea that we have a civic code, it it seems v- to be largely pushed on non-white immigrants and then for white native-born people, the civic code is kind of optional. But so but so where where does the white genocide come in? Oh, Matt, it, I was it, promised white genocide. <laughs> and you're going to get it. Um so it's it really you know, you start seeing that kind of language. It's interesting because you know, as we talked about this, you get the 1920s and this idea of this early idea of demographics as destiny. But then you know, as I read about it, you start seeing this rhetoric in the 70s and 80s in white supremacist literature, and you know David Lane, who's as far as I know, he's either still in prison or has died in prison. You know he wrote the White Genocide Manifesto and then later shortened it down to the fourteen words. Which, if anyone has ever had to deal with neo Nazis on Twitter, you'll know that numbers fourteen and eighty eight are very important. Um, eighty eight because it has to re- reference Heil Hitler. But um, you know we must secure the existence of our people and a future for white children. This idea that you know they are under demographic threat that at some point white people will cease to exist, but not because of and like an actual physical genocide, not because of, you know, some sort of like a literal Holocaust of some sort, but because white people aren't having adequate amount of children and non-white people are. And so you, know, you start seeing that rhetoric being spread around, especially, you know, you get these like weird white nationalist policy institutes, you get Richard Spencer, you get a lot of these people who are, you know, they're holding these forums saying global demographics and white survival, what is to be done? And, you know, you get conversations that compare African birth rates to that of deer in Arizona. And you have, you know, this idea that there's something that needs to be done about non-white people having too many children and then bringing them over here because they're they cannot become white people not that they can you know this idea that you know civic nationalism won't work because clearly non-white people cannot become adequately american because they cannot become white people but then even more terrifying they might have sex with white people and then produce mixed race people, and that would be the worst thing of all. Right, because that's right. the real white genocide. Exactly. Right, is the you know, it's 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 so fascinating because that's why you know I don't recommend doing this. But white genocide people on Twitter, the thing that gets them the absolute maddest are mixed race people in advertisements, or you know the Cheerios ad that had like a little biracial girl and her white mom and her black father. That people lost their minds on the internet because they're like, that is the threat. The threat is not, you know, some sort of, like, military takeover or, you know, for a lot of these people it was. But, you know, the threat is white people having sex with non-white people and then producing non-white children. Because that, that to them, is demographic suicide. This, I think, is another area where the kind of distinction between political and cultural threats is really relevant, right? Because you don't hear as much in this strain of the right about Aslan, as you used to 15 years ago. The idea that, you know, massive immigration of Latinos, specifically Mexicans, into the American Southwest was because they were going to have this stealth takeover and create this unified Mexican ethno-state. That's not really... That's, you know, you don't hear as much about that. You don't even hear as much about the idea of no-go zones in America as you do in in Europe. And so, you know, or in the context of Europe, the fear pretty clearly is not, there is definitely the idea that, you know, countries are sending people here, that that Mexico is sending bad people, that African countries are sending their worst people. It does get a little bit politicized, but the idea, which was, politically acceptable to express because it wasn't explicitly racist that this is about national sovereignty is not anymore what's being said. What's being said is the kind of nakedly cultural fear that this is about demographics and not about any 
obvious threat to the American government. Right. And you're you're not the the challenge. And I'm glad that Matt kind of brought up those quotes is that, you know, Germany is gaining German citizenship is remarkably difficult. You know, it is a like citizenship by blood type country, which is why for generations with, you know, Turkish guest workers, you could have, you know, have your great grandfather be born in Germany. When when Reagan said that it was literally true that you could not become German if you moved there from Turkey. They've changed the law somewhat now. It's still pretty hard. It's It's still still really hard. And as Marco Rubio famously pointed out in 2013, that is bad for civic unity. Rubio was saying that the reason he didn't want a second tier of permanent status that didn't lead to citizenship was because we saw how that worked out in Europe. People get, uh, you know, people don't have full citizenship. They get angry. They feel marginalized. Right. And bad things happen. And the, but it's interesting because it seems to be that, you know, since 2013, we've moved from that's bad, clearly it doesn't work, to actually, maybe that's not that bad. And And this idea that, you know, and it, what gets me every time is you start seeing, and I, you know, I, if I remember, was it last week that for some reason the White House decided to honor Barbara Jordan? Oh um, my gosh! Yeah. Because Barbara Jordan, she comes up a lot in conservative circles, surprisingly, because she appeared to have made arguments that immigration was bad for African-Americans because African-American—and you you hear that rhetoric a lot, that African-Americans and non-white immigrants will somehow just be scrapping it out for jobs when, you know, the idea is—you hear from a lot of conservatives is that, you know, the answer is not that is some sort of ethnic competition that is bad for African-Americans— but the solution is still, you know, largely race-based. And well, that, yeah, it's it's really I, I weird. I think it's, it's profound that Republicans sometimes like to bring up Barbara Jordan or this idea that immigration is bad for African-Americans, but it never takes off, right? right. There is no immigration backlash among African-American elected officials in the organized African-American political community. And that's because this effort to re-import essentially European immigration skepticism into the Republican Party. It's it's dangerous, and it's it's literally un-American. I mean, I, I'm very—since uh, I stopped being a philosophy student in college, I've become very impressed by the fact that different countries are just different, and you have to sort of accept that in its own way. Uh, one of the stupidest things that, like, trolls say to me online— who, for one thing, they're exaggerating the extent of my commitment to either Judaism or Zionism as a, <laughs> as a philosophy. But it's like, how about open borders for Israel? Yuck, yuck, yuck. Um, Israel cannot have open borders because Israel, for better or for worse, is a Jewish state. It's like it's there on the flag with the freaking star. Like, that's the whole point, right? Yeah. Uh, Finland, again, What what is Finland? It is a land for Finns. And so for whatever reason, I, I mean they have an they have ethnic minority populations. There's about a million Swedish speakers there. There's a smaller number of indigenous Sami people there. They have obligations to treat those communities in a decent way. It is also true that the Swedish speaking minority in Finland are in a sense second class citizens um because it is Finland that they are living in. And then immigrants to Finland need to be limited somewhat in numbers, and they have to become Finns in some meaning that is only discernible to Finnish people, but that, you know, it's rooted in something because there would not be a Finland if it wasn't for Finnish people. Uh, There have been people living in the vicinity of Jerusalem for many, many thousands of years, but there has only been an Israel since 1948 because that state, it, it means something. America also means something. And like, what it means is that it's a country dedicated to the proposition that people are created equal, that you can pledge allegiance to the flag, and that we secure for our posterity the blessings of liberty. There's like all these texts, and like that's what it what it is. And when you say that, okay, we need to modify immigration policy in some way to benefit people who live here already in some concrete way, that's fine. But when you say we need to make sacrifices of our concrete material interests just for the sake of tamping down on the number of foreigners here, you are 
picking apart at like the fabric of America, because, you know, most African-Americans are are not descended from recent immigrants. Uh, The uh, slavery is obviously not immigration in a conventional sense. But like if you're saying that America is actually an ethnic state, then black people who are longer settled in most cases than the white population are obviously not going to be included in that state. Right. Like it doesn't it doesn't like the country doesn't work. And it's it's right and fitting if people want to be against immigration and also wave Confederate flags. And that's to say, like, no, like, I want to destroy the country. Like, right. I, I don't believe in America. I actually think America was a bad idea and we should have, like, a totally different kind of country here. Yeah, and the Confederate... Is the, other, yeah. is the other thing here is, uh, you know, it's... It is true, looking back on it, that Finland means land of the Finns, et cetera, et cetera. But historically... You know, a lot of the kind of state-making projects of Europe, and I'm amazed that we haven't mentioned Imagined Communities by Benedict Anderson, which Ah. is the historical theoretical book, if you're interested in nationalism, that you have to read. Um, But the thesis of Anderson's book is that it actually took a lot of work by both civil society, especially the press, and the state to take groups of people who had not considered themselves part of the same culture, to take, you know, Bretons and Normans and whatever the heck other groups in France and turn them into French people, to turn, you know, the various German-Prussian groups into German people, that that requires an active project of, no, really, we are all unified in this. And if you're going to change America from a very, you know, lofty, idealistic, as long as you believe in the American creed, you are welcome here, to a nation of blood and soil. You actually need to do the work of saying, well, people who are here who may not think of themselves as the same kind of American all are American. That is a necessary part of building a nation state. And it seems in the 20th and 21st centuries that both Europe and America have kind of lost sight of that in terms of this idea that you can preserve your current ethnic balance and still be a nation state, even if there are these people around the edges who don't fit. Right. And that's it's interesting because one of the challenges that the Soviet Union faced was this idea of how to both encourage ethnic and cultural expression, but also make it clear that there was no nationalism more important than the nationalism of being a Soviet. And so the comparison was made that, you know, think of the Soviet Union like an apartment building. So you've got, like, an apartment for people who live in Siberia and an apartment for people who live in, like, northern Russia and an apartment for people who, you know, for Ashkenazi Jews, you've got all these different apartments. But the Russian, the Soviet state is like the concierge and the building security and the doors and the windows and everything is more important. And so... In this country, that tension between Americanness and the differences that we all have, even for people who are descended from immigrants but are, not, you know, are American citizens themselves, I think that like that's something that it seems as if a lot of these people have not really considered. And it's it's interesting to me that for people who appear to have spent a great deal of time considering immigration policy, they haven't really considered the meaningfulness of immigration and the cultural import of immigration. And the fact that, you know, the creation, you know, I brought this up in my article, but like, whiteness is kind of a creation. It is not a scientific fact, which is why, you know, with, um, it's very interesting when you get into weirdo white nationalist right wing circles, how people keep going back and forth on whether or not Jews are white. Some say they are, some say they aren't. And then they just they just argue back and forth all the time. But like this concept of what it means to be an American, it's changed thousands of times in terms of even for African-Americans, you have, you know, African-Americans who were able to pass as white and were kind of able to cross the color line and go back and forth and back and forth and back and forth. And this idea of when people start talking about race and immigration, that's I think that that's where this all falls apart. Well, so I think that the only kind of valid argument that I have heard in this regard is that the idea that we currently have of who counts as white in the American context is kind of dates from the period of quota-based immigration in the 20s through 60s. And the argument there, and this is 
something that I think historians are beginning to really get into the into the weeds of figuring out the extent to which it is true. But the argument is that with low levels of immigration, there was A, an incentive to existing immigrants to assimilate, and B, a little bit less feeling of cultural threat among other Americans, that they were willing to accept Italians and Poles as white in a way they wouldn't have been had they felt more of a threat from them. And I think that that is one of those problematic if true things. You know, at a certain point, this is a question of do you, are you willing to perpetuate the marginalization of people who are considered non-white so that white people can feel more comfortable? And if that is actually something that down the road leads to the definition of whiteness being broader, you can maybe make an argument from a utilitarian context that, like, maybe it's worth a certain amount of, you know, temporary marginalization. But it's still not clear what you do to pe- for people who feel that any gain in the welfare of non-white people is a personal affront to that. Right. It's this weird, like, this idea that, you know, if you put food in the mouth of a non-white person, you are literally taking it out of the hands of a white person. When that's just, no, that's not how this works at all. I've also always thought that the the problem with, with the, like, causal ascription of that to the immigration restriction is the huge confounding variable of the Second World War, right? right. That in 1928, after uh, immigration clamped down, but before World War II, you know, Al Smith runs for president, and you have crosses burning in the South, you have states that haven't voted for a Republican since the Civil War, suddenly finding the virtues of, of the party of Lincoln. My, my, my grandfather's from a, a Cuban family in, in Tampa. He he was born in the United States. He, he grew up there, but he grew up in a Spanish-speaking household, in a Spanish-speaking community. And he said that like he had, his people, they, they were never white in Florida. But when he went into the Navy, they were. And and some of that was that, like, the military literally had segregated units, and they had to decide, like, you were either black or you were white. And Cuba, he definitely wasn't black, and, like, therefore he was white. Uh, the, The state of Texas has, like, an official act in the 40s that, like, addresses this and says that Mexicans are white. And, and of course, a great sense of national unity, right? I mean, this is the incredible World War II movie cliche is a diverse group of right. white soldiers in the platoon together, working alongside each other, you know, fighting blah, blah, blah. Right. And, like, and, the and Jew while from that Brooklyn doesn't and- extend to African-Americans, the, you know, so much of the civil rights movement for both African-Americans and actually the the growth of the Latino rights movement in the South, especially in Texas, comes from veterans coming back and not being treated equal, as equal yeah. civilians despite having served their country. Yeah, my mother's family is white, Croatian, Appalachian. Basically everywhere that someone got run out of a country, that's where we are from. And my father's family is black, and my grandfather returned from helping to um, invade Normandy and was, you know, they had bricks thrown at their train when they were moving from D.C. to Cincinnati. And, you know, my grandfather, you know, he has he never really kind of forgave the U.S. government for, on the one hand, sending him. Essentially, he was a, in a balloon barrage unit, which was an almost suicidal mission, where basically his entire job was to deflect German gunfire away from landing troops on the beaches of Normandy. And he survived. And the U.S. government had essentially sent him to Normandy to die and then brought him back to a country in which people didn't seem to care about his life one way or the other or care about his family either way. And so that's, you know, you start seeing in the 40s and 50s for civil rights activists this idea of double victory, that if you win over there, you win at home. Because what better way to prove your citizenship than to fight and die for this country that will still not permit you to ride in buses or drink from water fountains or attend plays or go to restaurants or do kind of basic civic things. And so that, you know, that is a lot of the rhetoric of the civil rights movement is that it is not, you know, asking to do anything separate. It is literally asking to be like let into the same room. Right. And that, of course, is only possible because everyone else has been accepted as white. Right, exactly. But I mean, I I would just and I would I would say just as further 
evidence for my view, right, that if you look at the at the Know Nothing movement and the, the anti-immigrant uh, activism in the early uh, sort of mid-19th century, right, that after the Civil War, that goes away, right? They do not adopt, like, they, they don't win that battle in Congress. There is no anti-Catholic immigration restriction in the 1850s. In fact, under wartime pressure, the Lincoln administration signs a, an act to encourage immigration, is what it's called, because they, they wanted more people to fight. But it's also, it's an assimilative process. Like, it's not a good idea to deliberately get your country into giant wars. But, like, what happens when you fight a giant war is you need to take a bunch of people from different places who are used to eating different kinds of food and who maybe have some funny ideas about each other, and you have to get them to all work together and live together. And it's a, you know, it's a it's a great national, like, male bonding experience, uh, whether it's millions of people die, which, which is sad. But, I, I mean, I think... It's straightforward that, like, that's where the post-war spirit of national unity comes from the literal war. And then African-Americans who were excluded from that, it it becomes the new flashpoint of, of tension and ultimately a path in, right? I mean, the, the Cold War environment is is very relevant to the civil rights movement. I think. Right. Yeah. Right. So, I, so basically, Matt, what you're saying is that the way to kind of stamp out this reactionary fear of white genocide is to uh, go to war against a genocidal state? I would not (laughs) say that. But if we were thinking, how are we going to gear up for the big war with China in the 2030s? We would not be saying, oh, the big problem is too many people live in America. Right, like we'd be saying, we we got we got to get probably be saying some some problematic things about Chinese Americans though, which is the other thing that like if you're talking about World War II as a national unity project and not talking about the fact that you know Japanese Americans who had been born in the U.S. were being sent to camps, you know there are limits here. If we could if if we could invent an invasion from Mars, that would be great. There is no Martian American population that we would have to detain. That's an Andy's solution. Yes. All right. So having solved the world's problems, I think that this concludes this episode of The Weeds. Fantastic. Uh, Thanks for listening, guys. Um, uh, Thanks, Jane, for for joining us. Thanks to Peter Leonard, our producer. Uh, We are not going to do an episode on Tuesday because the State of the Union is being delivered Tuesday night. So we're going to come out Wednesday instead with a a State of the Union uh, recap, etc. Weeds. Um, So so look for us then. Uh, Check out The Weeds Facebook group. Uh, Great stuff happening there all the time. Uh, Many other fine podcasts on the Vox Media Podcast Network. And uh, we will see you on Wednesday.